You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right. Well, good morning, Town Center. How are you doing? Good. Good. Awesome. How many of you remember the speeches you had to deliver in middle school? Oh, yeah. Uh, Five minutes of pure pain. Uh, standing in front of the entire class, right? Shaking like a leaf with your cue cards in hand, wondering like what your crush is going to think you by the end of your five-minute speech, right? How many of you remember the topics that you did in middle school? Yeah? Anyone want to like shout out a couple of your topics? Angels. Angels? Okay. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. Anyone else so bold? How to cure hiccups. Is it pickle juice? No. No? Okay. (laughs) Drinking water upside down. I've heard that. Um, Anyways, I'll tell you some of the the speeches I did. I got better as as I went along. Grade eight, I did uh, my speech on uh, the effects of smoking, right? So like, you know, pretty like relevant issue. Uh, Grade seven, I spoke on Marcus Nasland back when the Canucks could actually keep their captain around uh, and had a decent team and respected their coach. Um, (laughs) Boudreaux got fired this morning, by the way. But in grade six, uh, for my very first ever speech, do you know what I spoke on? Not Jesus, no. I spoke on the riveting topic of the Bowron Lakes. So my dad, who's here with us in attendance, he had just completed this trip uh, while I was thinking of a speech topic, and he swooped in with passion about the Bowron Lakes. Has anyone canoed or kayaked the Bowron Lake chain? Okay, just my dad. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it's great, uh, and I've still never been. But when you're in grade six, none of your peers want to hear about a chain of 12 lakes and how many portages there are and how to keep your food safe from bears. Like, can you think of a more boring topic? I'm sorry, Dad. It's up there in terms of strange speeches. Now, when Brad asked me to preach at Town Center and I saw that I was speaking on circumcision of all things, I had flashbacks to my grade six Bowron Lake speech. So let me warn you. This is going to be a strange one. You're going to hear the word circumcision a lot. So get as comfortable as you can. I'm not going to lie. This was a beast in terms of preparation, this sermon. There's a ton of theology, a ton of scripture, uh, from Genesis to the prophets, the epistles, to the gospels. Like, it, it felt like I was preparing for an ordination interview all over again. So just prepare yourself. Uh, the first part of this sermon is going to feel like a history class. And I don't know about you, but... Most people, you know, for myself included, it's hard to sit through five minutes of history class without going to sleep. But not you guys. Not you guys. Like, you guys are, you're going to be able to persevere. I believe in you guys. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So, are you ready? I said, are you ready? All right, all right. Let me pray for you. All right, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Acts 15. And we pray this morning uh, that you would speak clearly and loudly uh, where we've maybe had like misconceptions about what the gospel is and about who you are. We pray that you would eliminate those lies, reveal your truth, and convict our hearts. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is the question I want to answer over the course of this sermon, and we're going to look at this through three points uh, in our text here. The issue at hand, uh, the evidence, 
and the verdict. So we're on trial here. So the issue, at the end of Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they announced to the church in Antioch that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews. So the kingdom is breaking in, Gentiles are getting saved, and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. But as we turn the page to Acts 15, we see an opposing group known as the Circumcision Party teaching that Gentile men must first be circumcised to be saved. Sure sounds like a great party, doesn't it? (laughs) But these were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also believed the old covenant requirements were necessary for Gentiles to be saved, for non-Jews to be saved. Now, for Jews, circumcision was a big deal. It wasn't some arbitrary thing. It was actually the sign of the old covenant. So when, when God established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So when the disciples are going out proclaiming the gospel and Gentiles are responding in faith, you could say this causes a bit of a kerfuffle. Now, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and they drop a statement that's just like so jarring, so nonsensical on like multiple levels that you just don't even know how to begin to respond? It's like, should I respond to the first part, the last part? Like, should I list these in alphabetical order? You don't know where to start. Like, maybe their statement's loaded with assumptions or missing some really key information. Well, that's essentially what the Jews are feeling here. Everything they knew was being turned upside down by Jesus and by what the, the apostles were preaching and doing. Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. In fact, look what Paul says, um, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. He says, to them, to Israel, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God brought all of those things to ethnic Israel. So on the first level, the Jews are coming to grips with the fact that the Gentiles are now welcomed to be part of the family of God. Those of pagan nations are being invited to become part of the people of God. So yeah, those uncircumcised Philistines like Goliath and that, yeah, those people are now welcomed in. This was radical in their eyes. Now just uh, so you have an idea of the level of strife between the Jews and Gentiles, here's a quote by uh, William Barclay. It says, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Pretty intense, eh? Pretty intense. Now, just for a moment, imagine you're Jewish and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You're now telling me that I'm called into fellowship with those rotten Gentiles? They're part of the family? Yes, but that's not all Jewish folks. Remember the part about the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 17 and the requirement for circumcision? Yeah, well, by the way, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be part of the family as well. Are you kidding me? 
God himself literally says in the text, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the mark of being part of the family. This is the declaration that if you want to live in obedience to God, you do this. If you don't get your foreskin cut, God cuts you off. That's what the text says. Is this sounding weird yet? (laughs) Just wait, there's more. For the circumcision party, it wasn't just circumcision that they were concerned about. They also believed that these Gentile converts needed to obey the the Mosaic law, which would have included things like uh, eating kosher food, going to festivals, participating in uh, ceremonial purification rituals. Circumcision represented a greater whole. It represented a commitment to observe the law. We can see this in verse 5, right? It says, some believers um, who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So as far as the circumcision party was concerned, you can't just go changing the rules for the likes of the Gentiles. So the key question became, do the Gentiles need to become Jewish and follow Jewish ceremonial laws to be Christians? This was the issue at hand. And this is the question that brought the theological heavyweights together at a meeting in Jerusalem, right? At this meeting, you've got the church in Jerusalem together with their elders and the likes of Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and James, who is the brother of Jesus and also the leader of the Jerusalem church. So in sports terms, you know, this is like bringing Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James together to show people how to play basketball. Like this ain't the Bush League, folks. This is the real deal. Now let's take a look at the evidence presented by the apostles. We've only got a summary in Acts 15 of what happened at this meeting. Obviously, it would have been quite long and lengthy, but this is just kind of the Cole's notes. Uh, You know, there was someone, I guess it was Luke, right, who penned penned down these words. Um, And this is what we have. This is the summary of the meeting. Now, what the apostles are going to argue is emphatically no, the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or follow the Mosaic law to be saved. So let's take a look at the evidence. They point to three things to build their case. Number one, the Old Testament scriptures. Number two, the Holy Spirit. And third, grace. So let's start with scripture. If you're a Gentile in the audience today, which most of us are, uh, this is important for you to know. If you were put on the spot uh, by a Jew to argue on the basis of the Old Testament alone that God welcomes you into his family, what would you say? This is what they're going to take a look at. And this is what the apostles do. James, in particular, appeals to scripture and in so doing, argues that the inclusion of the Gentiles wasn't some sort of like secret plan that the apostles hatched. He's saying, no, like this is in our very own scriptures. This, This is promised by God. If you look in verses 16 and 17, you'll see that he's quoting the prophet Amos in Amos 9, 11 to 12. So I'm going to read the passage from Amos. There's like slightly, uh, like a couple different minor variations in the text, but this is the text in Amos. It says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So in the Septuagint, 
The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been in use at the time of the apostles. The Greek word for nations was ethne. Now, ethne can be translated nations or Gentiles. So what James is saying is that Jesus, in Jesus, this prophecy is fulfilled. Through the messianic reign of Christ, all nations, all Gentiles are now included in God's blessings. And Israel is meant to be a blessing to the surrounding nations by being a light to them. And this is what we see in Isaiah 49, 6. Here's another text that affirms the inclusion of the Gentiles. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, as a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Here's one more verse for good measure. This was the verse that brought Charles Haddon Spurgeon to faith, by the way. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 22. The ends of the earth. That's the exact language used in Acts 1.8. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Or you can imagine the pushback by the circumcision party. We can wrap our heads around the Gentiles being a part of the family of God. But what about the covenant made with Abraham? Well, Let's not forget, Abraham himself was from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a Gentile. Whoa. And look at the promise more closely in Genesis 12, 3. The Lord said to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again in Genesis 17, 4. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is looking forward to the Gentiles. This is... 12 and 17 chapters into the book, (laughs) into the Bible. Yeah, but that's not what I mean. Even as a Gentile, Abraham was still circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of entry into God's family. Right. But Abraham predated the giving of the law to Moses. His circumcision was a sign to remember the promise, the covenant that God had made to him. You could say it was an outward sign of an inward reality. It wasn't a way to earn God's blessing. Abraham already had it through faith. And besides, God has established a new covenant now. Boom. Mic drop. New covenant. What are you talking about? Well, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 32 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So that's happening now. Jesus himself has inaugurated the new covenant through his death and resurrection. But... According to Romans chapter 9, I think we have the text there, uh, this new covenant with Israel isn't talking about ethnic Israel anymore. But Israel is referring to those who put their faith in the Lord. It's being reappropriated as the church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Look at Jesus' own words about the new covenant um, at the Last Supper. This is Luke 22. 
says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' spilled blood at Calvary has sealed the new covenant. What is this new covenant? It's not a disregard or an abandonment of the covenantal promise that God made with with Abraham. It's actually the fulfillment of that promise. You see, in Christ, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, can be made right with God through the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, we learn in 2 Corinthians 5. This means that we are set free from the law. The law doesn't make us right with God the Father. Jesus' eternal sacrifice does. He has redeemed us. In the words of Paul in Galatians 2.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is Deuteronomy 21.23 he's quoting. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Second point is the Holy Spirit. We look to the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what's happening among the Gentiles in the book of Acts. Look at our text. Peter says in verse 8 here, God gave them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, the Jews. He made no distinction between us and them. And then look again in verse 12. Paul and Barnabas mention the signs and the wonders that were done among the Gentiles through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles and the apostles are attesting to this truth. The Gentiles are getting healed. They're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. They're encountering the Holy Spirit. They're evangelizing through his power. So much so that the apostles cannot deny that the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, is at work among the nations. Those who are previously far from God are now being brought near. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for the outcasts. God's heart is for the rejected. God's heart is for all people. The Holy Spirit is now a sign of God's blessing and his presence. And God has freely poured out this blessing on people, regardless of circumcision and adherence to the law. There is no distinction. Ephesians 1 affirms this, verse 13 and 14. It states that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance in heaven our share in the kingdom of God. In other words, the spirit is evidence that we belong to God's family. So what about circumcision? Well, circumcision is actually still necessary under the new covenant, but not in the way you think. It's not a physical circumcision that marks you as one of God's people. It's a circumcision of the heart that marks you as one of God's family members. Colossians 2 Verses 11 and 12, if you don't believe me, says this, In him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
You can also look at Romans 2, uh, verses 28 and 29, if you want more on this. It basically states, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. That's what Paul says. So I have a diagram here. Um, I was really proud of this. I like drew this on a whiteboard as I was preparing. And then Canva is like your best friend these days. You know, you can like look like a graphic designer and not really know much. But here it is. Um, So... Let me explain this. Jesus, uh, sorry, just as physical circumcision under the old covenant is what marked people as the people of God. I chose to go with a knife, you know, uh, for that image. (laughs) Then we have Jesus, right? He does what the law couldn't do. Ushers in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit sent wind and fire. The Holy Spirit sent indwells believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, what happens when the Spirit indwells you, when the Spirit comes upon you and you give him access to every part of your life, he's going to bring a circumcision to the heart. He's going to bring a cut to your heart and your heart is going to be for him. And so how are people going to know that we are part of God's family? Well, in, in, in a similar way where circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, a physical mark, now we're actually marked by the Holy Spirit. So through the fruit of the Spirit, through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, through a rended heart, people will know that you are one of God's family members. So it's no longer physical, it's spiritual. This is how people will know that you belong to God. And so, for you, when you encounter the Holy Spirit, when you put your faith in Christ and receive the Spirit, he'll mark you and change you forever. It won't be easy because it requires that cutting of the heart. But he will mark you in such a way that people will wonder what happened to the old you. They'll start asking questions like, where'd the gossip go? Where'd that addiction go? Where'd that jealousy and animosity go? What's gotten into you? And that's where you reply, let me tell you what's gotten into me. The Holy Spirit has gotten into me. He's filled me. He's changed me. And he is changing me day by day by God's grace. I've got the Spirit. Yes, I do. I've got the Spirit. How about you? Back to middle school. Here's the reality. Some of you are actually marking yourselves with a physical circumcision mindset where you're doing all of these works to try to earn favor with God. You're wondering how much you need to read your Bible, how much you need to pray, how many times you need to serve at the food pantry, how how much money you need to tithe to be right with God. But that's not it. That's the law. The Spirit's invitation to you today is to stop striving through legalistic efforts to be made right with God and to instead receive his grace. To lean back into the Father's loving arms and let his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness wash over you and set you free from your striving. Look at verse 11. Peter says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Jesus did what the law couldn't do. Jesus lived a blameless, sinless life and reconciled us back to the Father through his death and resurrection. He was perfect, we were not. So what does God require of us? Not perfection, but our hearts. Now there's a world of a difference between striving for acceptance and striving from acceptance. It's the difference between doing works out of duty versus out of delight. So to illustrate this, I had an opportunity to go to Israel with pastors Mark and Diane and several other staff members at our church and some other people. 
Um, I think it was like 25 of us on the trip. And what a trip. Like, if you have the means to go, uh, I'd highly recommend go to Israel. But wow, it is crazy uh, experiencing and being part of uh, the culture there. Like, you notice all the ways that these Jews are religiously trying to keep the law and strive for acceptance. So um, I've got a video I want to play. Michelle took this video. um, And so we're going to cue it up. Sorry, it's sideways. I didn't think it was going to be like that. Here's an Orthodox Jewish guy coming up. Yeah, see ya. Okay. So what's happening there? Um, Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be like that. But anyways... (laughs) Um, So this is an Orthodox Jewish guy, 4 p.m. on Sabbath. So like Sabbath is coming and he's walking around to every shopkeeper and saying Shabbat, Shabbat. Like it's, it's time to close up. Like it was like he was the Sabbath police, right? So he's, he's going around like literally the whole block. Like we would just see him like one store to the next. It's time to close down. It's time to close down. Now as well, like on Sabbath, like do you know there's such a thing as Sabbath elevators? Like specific elevators, like in Israel. So like you go to your hotel and there's like a normal elevator, like the Gentile, like pagan elevator or whatever, and the, 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 the um, Sabbath elevator. And so what happens on Sabbath is you don't have to push a button. And the reason why you can't push a button is because it ignites a small fire and that's considered work on the Sabbath. So you have to stand there and it'll finally get to your floor you get in, and then it stops at every floor, right? Hey, it teaches you patience, right? But anyways, um, wow, like that, uh, striving. Um, I'm not sure if you've also heard of A.J. Jacobs, but he's an American journalist who describes himself as officially Jewish, but Jewish in the same way that the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. (laughs) Those are his words. Well, he actually made it his personal quest to live out as many of the Old Testament commands as possible in one year. He just kind of did it as like an exploration. Uh, So, you know, he didn't shave his beard. Uh, He didn't wear clothes of like two different fibers, all these weird like other obscure things. And then he wrote a book on it and he called it The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. Now, I haven't read the book, but apparently it's hilarious. Uh, You know, New York Times bestseller, I think. And just like, yeah, like quite a memoir. But in this book, uh, what what, uh, he said that he found is, you know, he became the ultra fundamentalist, right? Because he wanted to take everything to the T, you know, cross his T's, dot his I's. And in the process, he found that when he would hang out with other people who claimed to be fundamentalists, he found out they would really just pick and choose certain rules to follow. <laughs> so in other words, he found they couldn't keep the entirety of the law. And here's what he said of his own journey. He said, in trying to avoid one sin, I've committed another. And this is the reality of the law. It's a heavy yoke that we cannot bear. Now here's where we bring it home. The old covenant, the law, was about the heart all along. But Israel got caught up in the works of the law, believing that external behavior modification was what God desired, not inward transformation. The heart of the law was about the heart. It was meant to guide the people of God toward love of God and love of neighbor. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus moves relationship with God to a matter of the heart, not meticulous observance of the law based on technicalities. So when Jesus starts telling everyone that they're guilty of murder because they have anger toward one another and they're guilty of adultery because they lust over others, he's saying that righteousness isn't just about external behavior. It's about an inward transformation of the heart. We murder people in our hearts when we have hatred toward them. We commit adultery of the heart when we lust over another man or woman. Righteousness, according to Jesus, is a state of the heart from which behavior flows. But he isn't bringing about something new. He's actually just bringing the correct interpretation of the law, what the law was meant to uh, do anyways. He's saying, the law can't save you because your heart is far from me. The point of the law is to love God, to love your neighbor. But our hearts are prone to wander. And Peter highlights in verse 8 here that God knows the heart, right? We can't hide behind the false selves we present to the world. We can't hide behind the external appearance of morality or outward signs of commitment to God like the circumcision party believed. So, what's the verdict at the Jerusalem Council? Essentially, the verdict was, let's not get in the way of what God is doing among the Gentiles. We don't want to put God to the test. And I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to put God to the test. To stand between, you know, to stand between what God is doing, that's a scary place to be. Let's not get in the way of what the Gentiles are doing. Now, I don't have a ton of time to get into, like, verses um, 19 to 21, uh, when they talk about these, like, four requirements. But let's just take a peek at the back of the textbook, all right? You guys ever do that in math or science or socials, right? It's like, oh, let's just see if I got the right answer, right? Uh, well, here's the answer. So it mentions four things. Um, number one, food sacrifice to idols. Number two, uh, animals that are strangled, and three, consuming blood. Fourth was sexual immorality. Uh, the first three that I listed, really what that was about is the Gentiles should abide by these things for the purpose of fellowship with non-believing and believing Jews to cause non-offense so that there's not unnecessary barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. It wasn't some new covenant kind of law or something like that, but it was meant for the purpose of fellowship. Now with the last one, with sexual immorality, this was a call to holiness. This was a call to life consistent with Christ. Uh, Gentiles would come out of a culture where like, Sexual immorality was rampant and normal. There's a lot of pagan ritualistic, um, like prostitution that would happen in temples. Uh, you know, just fornication was common. And so this was a call that like, hey, when you, when you accept Christ, when your heart is rended, like your lifestyle should be consistent with, uh, you know, the, the heart of God in sexuality. And so anyways, that's kind of the peak at the back of the textbook. But what is the verdict? The Gentiles are in, folks. We made it. We made it. But we didn't just squeak in. Um, It was actually God's plan all along. The Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God by grace, through faith, and need not be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. I'm sure all the males were rejoicing, right? Oh man, isn't grace amazing? Wow, Jesus is good. Let's go new covenant. But in all seriousness though, To require the Gentiles to essentially become Jewish 
would be to place a yoke of slavery on them that they cannot bear and were never meant to bear. A burden that the Jews themselves couldn't even bear, according to Peter, if you look in verse 10. That's like telling someone to pick up a canoe by its yoke and walk at 116 kilometers around the Bowery Lakes without a rest. So my friends, what does it mean to be a Christian? It is to be a recipient of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put your faith in the Jesus who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to take away the yoke of slavery that you've been shouldering and replace it with his easy yoke, with his light burden. By putting our faith in him, it requires, though, that we must give him our hearts, not just simply our minds and our belief. According to scholar Matthew Bates, the word pistis is the Greek, um, in, in the Greek that we normally translate as faith, is better translated as allegiance. So when we understand faith, often with our Western mindset, we think of like just our belief, just our cognition, our intellect. But when we, tr- when we understand that like faith is better translated as allegiance, then we're saying when we put our allegiance in Jesus, it's not just saying I believe in you, but it's saying you're the king of my heart. So the question this morning that I have for you is, does Jesus have the allegiance of your heart? Have you exposed your heart to the Holy Spirit that he may rend it? I want to close with a story from C.S. Lewis' book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that captures this beautifully. So if you haven't read this book, or if it's been a while, there's a boy named Eustace. He's a young boy, and he had unknowingly forfeited his innocence to a deceiver. And as a result, he was covered with these dragon scales all over his body, and it became a prison that he couldn't escape from. He would try to pull these scales off, and sometimes he'd have a little bit of luck, but then it, they would just grow back. And to no avail, uh, he, he, would, he would try, strive, all this effort. And then at last, Aslan, who is the lion here in the picture, representing the Christ figure, comes to Eustace in his desperation when he's, he's worn out, he's tired. And this, I'm just going to read the section of the book. This is, this is the scene. Then uh, Eustace is recounting this. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but it was pretty, I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun seeing it come away. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smarter and smaller than I had been. Then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on. 
and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. So will you let God peel away the false self that you've been presenting to the world? Will you stop trying through your own efforts to wash yourself, to make yourself presentable before God? All you have to do is to lay still, to expose your heart to him in vulnerability and receive his grace freely. Allow him to pierce your heart and transform you. Let me pray for you. Well, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Jesus, we thank you that you did what we couldn't do. Jesus, we thank you that you lived a sinless, blameless life. Lord, and that when we put our allegiance in you, we're reconciled to the Father, Lord. That we, we, we don't have to strive and work for your affection, for your love, for your grace and your mercy. We already have it. But Lord, out of our love for you, out of our appreciation, our reverence for what you've done for us, Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. We want to strive from that acceptance, from that grace. And so God, I pray that right now for all of my brothers and sisters here, for anyone who, who might have that yoke of slavery that they've just uh, continued to bear, that, that you don't mean for them to bear, that you would release that yoke of slavery from them. Lord, that you would replace it with your, your easy yoke and your light burden, that they would experience you to be gentle and lowly in heart. But God, I also pray for courage, Lord, in the areas of our lives where we might have to say, God, I've been hiding this part of my life away in a corner, this part of my heart, and I, I want to expose that to you so that you can pierce it and bring transformation. God, I pray for courage uh, for my brothers and sisters. And God, I pray as well that, um, that, that, that they would know that when they bring things into the light, Lord, you're rejoicing. Lord, you don't condemn them. You don't look on them with disappointment, but with love and with favor and with grace. And so, God, I pray for free hearts today, free hearts this morning. Lord, that in the presence of, of your grace, Lord, we, we, we feel new. We feel alive. We feel like boys and girls all over again. And so, God, I pray that uh, you would just release this yoke of slavery and that we would learn day by day, again and again, just the beauty of the gospel. And so, Lord, we thank you that in you is salvation, in you is grace and forgiveness and love. And God, we thank you that all we have to do is come to you and say, Lord, you have my heart. You have my heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. To you be the glory and the praise forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.